Hello, you're listening to Second City Sermons, a ministry of Second City Church in Midtown Harrisburg. This fall, we're in the short yet significant New Testament letter of 1 John. John was writing near the end of the first century to many Christians who were either giving up or being tempted to give up on some of the basics of Christian faith. He responds to this by calling them back to correct doctrine, obedient living, and lively devotion. At its heart, this book is calling us to find our life in the life of the beloved, Jesus. We'd love to meet you, and we hope you'll consider coming and joining us each Sunday morning at 10 a.m. in the heart of Midtown Harrisburg. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. We hope you enjoy this sermon. God bless. Lord, uh, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you that it speaks to so many different aspects of our lives. Uh, It speaks so clearly to us when we are little children in the faith, just getting going with the idea of the forgiveness of sins and and life with God the Father. And and it speaks to us when we're in the thick of it, uh, fighting for the faith and full of doubts and yet still showing up and seeking to make it through. And it uh, speaks to us in the and the maturity of faith, having conviction and a life surrendered uh, to the one who is from the beginning and the Alpha and the Omega, finding all of life in you. Lord, thank you for this. God, I pray that each one of us today would be brought along in the journey of faith by this text that you've given to us from uh, the Apostle John written long ago. Uh, speak to us afresh, please, Lord, and draw us into the great fellowship of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. All right, so the, la- the last, I never lived on campus when I was at college. I went to the great uh, Harvard of the Pacific Northwest, Western Washington University. I know y'all are jealous of that, if you know Western at all. Um, it's a great place. I never lived on campus. I lived off campus in houses with friends, and my favorite one was the last house that, we lived, that I lived in. Um, I lived in a house with just a bunch of guys, some of whom are still my dearest friends. Um, and let me give you a couple examples of why I loved living in this house. One of the guys, Josh Kluth, he was actually a minister for a little while. Now he's starting a school kind of like Logos in Bremerton, Washington. He was very musical. We, we actually met in a choir class at Western. We were both reading a C.S. Lewis book during... <laughs> I should, uh, uh, we were reading a different book during class and we were like, oh, you too. Which is actually an illustration that Lewis uses for friendship. We're looking out and we're going, oh, you're doing that too. Um, and Josh actually at one point wrote a musical for our house. There were 11 guys living in this and he wrote the music and the lyrics. And we actually took everything out of our large living room and we put chairs down there and we had two weekends full of shows for our friends and our family. And all, everything was done by Josh. It was amazing. Um, every Sunday night we'd have a house meeting and normally it would end and you had to show up. And a lot of times we'd talk about bills and who's not doing their their chores and things like that. Same kind of house meetings that, you know, parents have, but this is a bunch of dudes. And uh, then afterwards we would either have a wrestling competition or we'd go to the gym and have a basketball game or something like that. And you had to be there. It was a required thing to live in the house. You had to show up on Sunday nights and, and participate. Well, one thing that we did was we brewed a lot of beer. Um, and uh, these were all Christian people and quite a, about half the house was volunteering in Young Life and then half of us were involved in campus ministries. Well, in Young Life, at least in the Northwest, you weren't supposed to have any alcohol in your house, even if you were above 21. And so we had a fridge that had kegs in it in the garage. Um, And what we, uh, we would take turns brewing. And actually two of those guys own their own breweries. 
one in LA and one in Hood, Hood River in Oregon. And the guy in Hood River actually won a few years ago the number one mid-sized brewer in the country, um, Freem Family Brewers, if you've ever heard of that. But here's what we would do. We'd take turns, and if you've ever brewed beer, you know that there's a good amount of time where you're just kind of waiting. The brewing is happening, like you know, the grains are being steeped and the hops are going in at different times. Um, but there, for there's a good hour plus where it's kind of like sitting around waiting to do the next thing. And so one of the things that we decided to do is that we would sing songs. And uh, we would sing hymns. And one of the hymns that we decided we would sing every time was Psalm 68. Psalm 68 is known as the battle hymn of the Reformation for a little while. Actually, the tune that was written by Louis Bourgeois, who was the musician for Calvin in Geneva, was outlawed in France because it was so associated with the Protestants in France. That is not in my manuscript, but it's a, you know, trivia, trivial pursuit. If you ever have trivial pursuit Reformation edition, you have the most weird answer to give. Um, so anyway, we'd sing this, this hymn, this psalm, and why we would do so is because uh, Psalm 68, and it's in its hymn form, rewritten by Louis Bourgeois, is 12 verses long, and every single verse takes up two pages of the hymnal. And so it literally takes a minute per verse. And so you can, you can kill 12 minutes singing that song. And so that's why we sing it. Um, some of you know this though, Psalm 117 is two verses long and I timed myself. It takes you eight seconds to read it. Okay. Um, so a lot of times, a lot of times when we, when we sing a hymn, we know that that hymn is telling us a story. It's giving some kind of narrative arc. It, it begins with one idea and it brings you to something else. You know, it tells you this, this story. And that's one of the reasons why we love and sing some old hymns. You, will, you arrive at someplace different from where you began. Um, but there's also songs that we sing like Psalm 117. In fact, we do that even in our church. We sing psalms like the, songs like the Kyrie, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. Very short, they're known as canticles in the Christian tradition. Um, and of course, now one of the great sort of places where you can find some of that is in the Taizé community in France. We sing a couple of their songs here. Um, but there's another kind of song, and I will say that I used to really kind of make fun of this and I would use this derogatory term that there are seven eleven songs. There are seven words and you sing them 11 times, right? And now here's what I want to tell you is that the Bible actually gives us a precedence for that too. We heard this morning in our call to worship from Psalm 136. Psalm 136 is 26 verses long and literally every single verse says the exact same phrase. What is it? The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. All you did was say that like eight times. And probably by the end of the call to worship, you were like, man, and actually the Bible invites you to say it over and over and over and over again. And so there's biblical precedence for all these kinds of different songs. Okay. Um, we, and let me say this. I don't totally understand why that all happens, but I think one of the things that the Bible is teaching us is that we might have a preference for a certain kind of way, but we're actually submitting to this idea that the body of Christ is wide and large and big, and we love each other actually through singing in these different ways. And we engage with God through learning in these different kinds of ways. Um, I'm absolutely convinced, though I don't totally know why the Bible communicates in these different ways, that the Bible is given, to, that the Lord gives us the Bible out of his love for us. And he actually wants to shape us into his very image. And he wants us to have opportunities to love others and to serve others, how he's made those other kinds of people. I think one of the great tragedies actually of, of the church now is that we're so divided based on our preferences 
And so you have the songs, the, the congregations that just sing this kind of song or just sing that kind of song. And actually the, the invitation to the Christian community is to live with difference in love. Writing in the fourth century, St. Jerome said this, the scriptures are shallow enough for a babe to come and drink without fear of drowning and deep enough for a theologian to swim in and never touch the bottom. Okay, now I say that in part because I actually think it introduces in somewhat the idea of love that we're going to consider this morning. But I also wanted to address this. First John, and actually you probably caught this even as David read to us the gospel reading from the gospel of John. Uh, To put it like bluntly, more bluntly, it's like the repetitive song. And it's like the song, you know, sometimes when you re- sing a repetitive song, and maybe we did that during the canon, you're scratching your head going, I don't know when we're going to stop. And I don't really know where this is going. Um, and that's kind of more how John goes sometimes. He's just weaving these themes together. And um, un- that's kind of unlike Paul's writing. And actually the other gospels, if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're kind of just sequential. You know, one thing follows another thing, follows another thing, follows another thing. And that's a lot of times how Paul's writing is. It's very easy to say as a preacher, oh, this is the section that I'm supposed to preach on because it's just right there. And then the next thing builds on it. And John instead, he kind of, he doesn't do the A, B, C, D kind of teaching. He does the A with a little bit of B sprinkled in. And then I might introduce a little, little splash of D. And then, you know what, we're going to go A, B, and then we're going to add C right now. And then we're just going to go back to A for a little bit and sit in this. And it's just kind of doing this thing. Um, that's what's happening in, in John. Now, I've said this, that John is right near the end of the first century. Most people think around 90, but he was definitely the, the longest living of the apostles. He was probably the youngest apostle when Jesus was living. Um, And he's addressing this question of these Christians who have given up on some of the basics of Christian faith. Um, John, right at the very beginning of chapter one, you might remember, this is a few weeks back, said that the eternal took on flesh in the incarnation of Jesus. And that because of that incarnation, you actually get to have fellowship with God and fellowship with one another because of the work of God in the incarnation in the cross and resurrection. And then he addresses this question of sin by beginning to enter into this dialogue of light and darkness that he's going to start to sprinkle throughout the rest of the book at times. Um, And he's also talking about lying, which he's also going to talk about probably next week. Um, And he talks about how they go together and how we deceive ourselves if we don't acknowledge sin and confess it, or we deceive ourselves if we diminish it, or we deceive ourselves and we make God out to be a, a liar if we say it doesn't even exist. Um. So, but what we're seeing here, though, in, in, the, in this little book so far, is um, that your life, your, your lived life with one another, the fellowship you have with one another, and the ways that you engage with what you do in your life or don't do in your life, has everything to do with these eternal truths of God. The incarnation and, and the God's revelation and this idea of light and darkness and sin and truth and all this kind of stuff. Um, the theology is always lived out. Your idea of who God is will always actually make a manifestation in your daily life. That's part of what John's telling us. So he begins to actually invite us into asking some questions. And then the big question is this, how do you know? How do you know if God's truths 
have actually grabbed a hold of you? And that's a good question to ask. I mean, I'll suggest this to you. It's a good question to ask if you're just kind of beginning in the faith, if you're like a newborn in the faith, or if you've been following Jesus your whole life. Like, how do I know if the, if the truths of God have really grabbed on to me? Okay, a couple weeks ago, I mentioned that there were three false views of sin that John addresses. Today, I want to talk about two of these tests, tests that we can ask ourselves to see if God's truths have really grabbed onto us. And um, today, there, you can kind of um, say that there's a moral test. Uh, there's a moral test of how you're living your life, and then there's a social test. But actually, wanna, I want to say that there's a test of obedience, that's the moral test, and then there's also a test of love, okay? A test of obedience and a test of love. Look with me at the first John passage, our New Testament reading, uh, verses three through six. And by this, we know that we've come to know him. If we keep his commandments, whoever says to him, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. All right, two weeks ago, if you were here, or if you listened to the sermon, uh, what I tried to point out to you is that John three times, and this is like the preacher's dream, right? The three times in a row he says the same thing. He says this, if anyone says, blah, 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 if anyone says, if anyone says, today he actually gives us uh, not the same phrase, but something else. And it's this, by this we know. Verse three, and then again in verse five, by this we know. And uh, John is sort of inviting us to ask, do you know? How do you test, right? This question, how do you know if God's truths have really grabbed onto you? And the first thing is this, te- this moral question or this test of obedience. Verse three says this, by this, we've come to know him. Verse five says this, uh, halfway through verse five. By this, we may know that we are in him. Okay. Before we actually get to what he says, I want to remind you once again what John is doing in this letter, right? What John's doing is he's calling these people Think about this. He's writing probably in about 90 AD. Jesus died around 38 AD. You know, he's writing in, in, on the western part of what is now modern-day Turkey, what would have been Asia Minor. We think he was writing from the city of Ephesus. We think that for a number of reasons. Um, and he was writing to churches that had been established by this point probably at least 20 years, maybe as many as 40 years. And John would have been establishing some of those churches in his missionary time in the 50s. And uh, these churches, these people had kind of settled in. Maybe they'd established themselves. Maybe they, you know, had gone from like meeting in somebody's home and they'd start to build church buildings. We know some churches go at least back to the beginning of the second century. So maybe they were doing that. And they were kind of like, I don't know, they were looking at their neighbors and they were going, man, I don't know about this Christianity stuff. Maybe I should actually follow what that guy's doing. It just looks a little bit easier. Why don't I go along with all my neighbors who say that I can live this kind of lifestyle? That, I mean, it just might be easier to not be taunted by people and made fun of. And, 
And why don't I just go back to worshiping all of these panoply of gods? I mean, I'm called an atheist, and I'd say that I worship the one true God, and all my neighbors are making fun of me and all this. You know, so, he, so he's bringing them back who are tempted to go away from these basics of the Christian faith, the truth of Christ's incarnation, the reality of sin, the need for the atonement, the cleansing work of Jesus. He's calling them back. And uh, they're wrestling with this question. How do I know if I'm in, in Christ? How do I know if I have my life in him? And he wants them to wrestle with this. And so he answers this twice, right? And it's this question of obedience. So verse three, again, let me read this. And by this, we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Verse five, the second part. By this, we may know that we are in him. Verse six, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So I just want to invite you to reflect on this. What's your posture towards the commandments of God? How are you walking in your life? Who are you following? Who are you desiring to follow? Can you say with the psalmist who wrote Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible, in which every verse talks about the statutes or the laws or the ways of the Lord. Things like this. Verse 10, Psalm 119, with my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Verse 18, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. He says, I want to see your law as wondrous and life-giving. Verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. How many of you know that? Or the flip. Do you find that your desires are for this world? the things of this world, the desires of your flesh, are those more appealing than the commandments of God? Do you desire to walk in his ways? I want you to, to ask yourself that. Test yourself. Are you in him? Do you desire the things of God? It's a good test. All throughout scripture, we read this, that faith without works is dead. It's dead faith. If your life would be the same right now, if you just took Jesus out of it, then you may not be in him. If your life would look the exact same as you're living right now, if you just stop doing the whole Jesus thing, then you might not be in him. Okay, it's a test of obedience. It's a moral test. It actually has to do with what are you doing with your life. But there's a second test, and this it just sounds a lot nicer. It's a test of love. Uh, it, may, it may seem odd to some of you that, that John invites us to the obedience test first. Um, but I think he does that so that we can even properly hear the test of love, okay? Because of this. When I say love, 
your temptation, because it's the temptation of the waters in which we live, is to really think that what I'm saying is feelings of affection. Um, or that just somebody else finds someone else sexually appealing. That's the way that we use love. Um, we're tempted to think that love just has everything to do with what's going on someplace inside of us that gives us the warm fuzzies. Maybe in our heart. Which is also to say that mostly when we talk about love, what we're just talking about is what we desire, what we want to have. Which means that sometimes when we say, I love you, means I desire you. And that is why, in all honesty, I can tell my wife, I love you. And I can look upon a donut and say, I love you. <laughs> because I just desire. <laughs> right? And they're true statements. And yet we somehow know we're not talking about the same plane even. It's not, we're not really saying the same thing. Um, writing in Time Magazine back in 2016, the rabbi David Wolpe, uh, who's a rabbi out in LA, said, wrote this. He says, it's time to change the meaning of the word love. The word is mostly used according to the first definition given in the dictionary, an intense feeling of deep affection. In other words, love is what one feels. He says, after years spent speaking with couples before, during, and after marriage, and if ta talking to parents and children struggling with their relationships, I'm convinced of the partiality of the definition. Love should be seen not as a feeling, but as an, an acted emotion, an acted. Something that takes on flesh. To love is to feel and act lovingly. To many women, too many women have told me bruises visible on their faces that the husband who struck them loved them. Since they see love as a feeling, the word hides the truth, which is that you do not love someone whom you repeatedly beat and abuse. You may have very strong feelings about them. You may even believe you cannot live without them, but you do not love them. Love is an enacted affection. Love takes on flesh. Love is incarnate. Now we were told in olden days, way back in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, that we're not to hate our brothers in our hearts, but we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. Um, Jesus famously, numerous times, sums up the whole law and the prophets by telling us, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. It's an old commandment. It's not a new commandment. But it's a new commandment. Listen to this again. Verse 7 through 9. Beloved, meaning loved ones, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that I had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you've heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. What? <laughs> uh, it's old. It's not new. It's new. Huh? And yes, that's right. 
And it's because of this, we're tempted to downplay the fact that faith always is accompanied by deeds, by works. That love divorced from, an, an, from being enacted is not true love, right? The rabbi out in LA gets this exactly right. The temptation is just to say, oh, this idea, let's love your neighbor in your heart. Love only in your heart most often is love not at all. Verse 9, whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there's no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. There you see John talking again about light and darkness and lying and walking, and he's weaving the A, Bs, and the Cs together. But the thing that's happening is that this is a real, real test of faith. Has the truths of God grabbed the hold of you? Are you in Christ? Are you in him? Of course, it has to do with your posture towards the law of God and the words of God, and the commandments of God, the revelation of God, the Bible, the scriptures. But another true test of faith is how do you act towards one another? I mean, how do you feel about one another? That's actually, that's a good test too. How do you feel towards one another? But love in the scriptures is always an enacted affection. How are your actions lived out in the flesh with one another? Do you act, act in love towards one another? Um, I'm not going to say who this is at all. My wife might know because I was complaining about it. But there's one person who left our church since I've been here. There's been a lot, as all of you know. Um, but this person really told me that when they came to church, they felt like throwing up. Um, it's just a good question. How do you feel when you're with one another? And then how do you actually begin to serve? Are you actually engaging in the life of the community and serving one another? And desiring to lay your life down for one another? Are you harboring anger? This bitterness, long-rooted bitterness towards somebody else, has it just grabbed a hold of you? Has it got its roots deep down? Have you allowed the Lord to dig it up? Are you actively digging that weed up? Has your heart actually produced words of violence towards others? actions of hatred, a reticence to jump in and serve. Does your heart work itself out into your hands and your feet in acts of selfishness and hoarding? Or a desire to give and to serve? Just ask yourself, how do you live with one another? I have no idea why that went off. Probably has to do with us trying to time our songs at the beginning of the service. I don't know. Um, of course, this is the ultimate test of faith because 
what we've heard so far is that the heart of Christian faith is the, is the incarnate God, the eternal becoming present and someone who can be touched and heard. Love takes on flesh. God is not just a God who feels warm, fuzzy thoughts about rebellious people. God is not just up in the sky desiring and just staying up there wishing and hoping. Not just hoping that you run away from sin and running to him. God runs towards you. He takes on real flesh. John was at pains to say this. Remember Luke at the beginning of Luke is at pains to say this. You could touch him. You could hear from him. You could see him. He really hung on a cross as the propitiation for our sins. As John said at the end, at the beginning of chapter two, in the flesh. God's love takes on an enacted affection. Now, I want to get back to that in a a way of closing this sermon, but partly why I, I began with this sort of illustration of different songs that Christians sing is partly because that is actually how John writes. And I think we have to appreciate the diversity of the scriptures writing, and we have to be able to enter into its differences, whether it's Psalm 117, that's two verses, or Psalm 119, that's 165 verses. And I think that's actually, we're invited into seeing the difference of one another and the beauty of the body of Christ by this really strange little interlude in 1 John chapter 2. It says this, listen to it again. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. You've overcome the evil one. I'll be, I'll be honest, when I was reading this, this summer and even the last couple of weeks, I was like, how in the world does this fit in? What is John doing? And actually, quite a few commentators think that maybe this was a later addition to the epistle, even though the earliest manuscripts we have have this in there. Um, but it just seems like it's an odd thing to all of a sudden throw in there. But the best explanation I had was that this is talking about stages of faith. And so you shouldn't think of the little children here, um, which uses the bo- both of the main Greek words for little children. Um, paideia, like the little ones in the technon, the little, little, little ones. Um, it uses the, uh, words for little kids, but you shouldn't be thinking about it. It's just the kids that are in children worship right now or in the nursery. It's actually just speaking to those who are young in faith talks about the basic things like uh, understanding that God is father and understanding that your sins are forgiven. These really basic things of Christian faith. And it talks about the fathers and you shouldn't think that the fathers or the fathers and mothers are just the ones that are old. That's not true. Actually, sometimes very young people like Paul commends Timothy in first uh, Timothy actually have great faith. And, but, it, but to be, uh, seasoned in the faith is to understand that God is from the beginning. It actually says the exact same thing that addresses fathers here. It says they're from the beginning. That you, have a, you have a sense that God spoke all things, that he's the Lord of all, that every single aspect of your life is to be laid before him. He holds all things together. 
But the interesting thing too is that you have this, it, it says young men or like, you know, what you should think is sort of the, the people in the middle. And, um, and those are the people that probably are in the greatest fight. Both times it says you've overcome the evil one. And he's writing to these people, this, this church that's kind of wrestling with how do, they, how do we engage with others and how do we live this life out? And do we stick to the faith? And he's saying, stick with it. Keep going. You're tempted at times to be overcome by the evil one, but keep pressing on. But here's how I think it interacts with this commandment of love and obedience. It's that you are always situated in a community. And sometimes the temptation in that community is to look down on others. Man, you're only getting the forgiveness of sins? All you want to read is Psalm 117 that's two verses long? Huh, I know how to read all of Psalm 119 by myself. We all know these temptations. Or we, frankly, we know the temptation just to look up to others and actually not engage with what's right in front of us. We just want to put ourselves on this kind of like, you know, comparison game. And it is, comparison is the enemy of love. It is. Comparison is where we harbor anger, where we just demand and we hoard and we greed, we lust, we take from others. And he's saying, enter into this community of faith. This is actually deeply beautiful with people that are just getting going with the faith. And some people that have been laying their lives down year after year, and they see that God is eternal. He's from the beginning and that all things are to be offered to him. And they've learned the habits of giving their, their entire life over to God. And there's some people that are just in the midst of the wars of Satan and the difficulties of this life and all the things that bring up doubt and faith. And this is what enacted affection is. It's life in a real community, not a fake community that you just make up in your mind. It's the real stuff. Tests of love. A moral test, a test of obedience, a social test, a test of love. How do we love one another? All of us. He desires all of us to know that we belong to the community of the beloved. That's what he calls this verse 7, beloved. Beloved, do you know that you were loved by God? Have you given your heart and your life over to him? Walk as he walked. Delight in his word. Take on flesh with one another. Sing songs that might challenge your proclivities to how songs should be sung. read this by Mike Cosper, a book that he wrote called Rhythms of Grace. He said, Love's make, love makes people do crazy things. The stories we tell in literature and film are full of examples of the crazy things people will do for love. Love empowers Odysseus through madness and suffering, driving him desperately and longingly back towards home. Love makes James Potter stand in front of Voldemort's killing curse to protect his wife and child and gives his wife the courage to do the same. It sends Prince Philip through a forest of thorns and into war with a dragon to rescue Sleeping Beauty. It's always enacted. It's always calling us to something. He said, it's the motive behind a thousand songs and a thousand poems. It's woven into the fabric of our universe because it's reflective of the very heart of God. Love is what sends Jesus to the humblest state of Mary's womb. It leads him through a quiet life his rambunctious public ministry and his agony at Golgotha. 
The love of God for you was seen by the perfect obedience of Jesus to the will of the Father. Perfect obedience. And it's also seen in perfect enacted affection. So the question for us this morning is, are we in him? Do we want to walk in his ways? Find delight in his paths? Do as he did. Delight in the law of the Lord and enact love towards one another. I want you to reflect on that this week. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this little epistle of 1 John. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We pray that we would hide it in our hearts, that we might not sin against you, and that we might not sin against one another, that we might love one another with our whole heart, mind, and soul, and strength, that it might be a true affection, a true affection that finds its way out into how we spend our time and our money, what we do with our hands and our eyes. God, make us a community of love. As we read in uh, the Gospel of John, in John chapter 17, may we be one as you and the Father, Lord Jesus, are one, so that the world would know that the Father sent the Son. May our love for one another be a testament, may be a declaration. And would those about us not be amazed by us, but be in awe of you and drawn to worship you. Please do this in us, Lord. Please. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Second City Sermons Podcast. We hope this sermon has encouraged you to worship God and to celebrate the gospel of Jesus. Please consider subscribing to this podcast and joining us in person each Sunday at 10 a.m. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Thanks again for listening. God bless.